Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is George Lawson, and I teach in the International Relations Department here at LSE. Thanks for coming out on such a filthy night, another one, and a tube strike to boot. I hope you didn't have to come too far. We will offer you intellectual solace for the soul on this night of impediments, both physical and political. Um, before I introduce our speaker for this lecture, could I ask you to turn your mobiles to silent, please? We used to ask that you turn them off, but in the days of Twitter, where you're now going to be live tweeting this, and the hashtag is, I understand it, LSE Sport, uh, then if you could turn them to silent, that would be very, uh, that would be terrific. Tonight's lecture is part of the Ralph Miliband program, and the Ralph Miliband program is intended to advance the spirit of free social inquiry. And we have a perfect uh, speaker in that mall tonight, in Mark Marquezee. Mike. Mike. Sorry, what did I say, Mark? People do that all the time. <laughs> it's the last name. Uh, Mike Marquezee. Mike's uh, wiki page, his Wikipedia page, describes him as a deracinated New York Marxist Jew. So you take the New York out, you actually could have described Ralph Miliband. Um, and now maybe with David moving to New York, you can have the whole of the Miliband family there, or maybe you don't want that link to be made. Uh, I think, well, uh, yeah, yeah, possibly have that part of it, yeah. But Mike is most certainly a free thinker. He's an activist and writer on a range of topics. He was just telling me that a, a recent book uh, is actually a, a forthcoming book, but something you can pay, uh, buy now. Uh, called The Price of Experience, actually. Uh, Mike's been very unwell over the last few years, and it's about his writings uh, dealing with his uh, illness, his cancer. And it's a collection of his writings from The Guardian, Red Pepper, and elsewhere, available from all books and available with a 15% discount, which is something I guess you could use your mobiles for and now silently if you, if you were so inclined. Books. O-R That's books. That's all you need to know. Look it up. Um, but Mike is, is probably best known for his writings on sport, which is what he's going to be talking about tonight, which he's described, I think, rather wonderfully as wonderfully pointless, um, which is possibly why I like uh, virtually all sports. But I particularly like the sport that Mike has written probably most widely on, which is, which is cricket. And he's produced a number of books, and he has an excellent uh, blog, a set of writings at www.mikemarkazee.com, which I was uh, browsing through as I was thinking about uh, this lecture. He has a couple of lines in there about cricket, which I wanted to read out, which is that cricket's justification is that it has no justification. It is a sublime exception, an oasis of the useless and the unproductive, which, again, might be another reason why I'm particularly taken to it, which is not something I hope my head of department hears. There could be no better motivation. Indeed, in a world that prizes itself on the only knowledge being so-called useful knowledge and being hyperproductive without actually being so, I think praise for the useless unproductive is all the more powerful. Um, I was also going to introduce Mike because it links to the, to the topic of his talk um, with a phrase which I now understand is from Ashish Nandi, which is that cricket is, a, is an Indian game that happened accidentally to be discovered by the English. Mike has been telling me for the last five minutes why well, actually that's a very poor um, <laughs> uh, uh, understanding of cricket, but it's <laughs> shared by our colleagues in the of front India, row. India, I think, principally. Of yeah. India rather than cricket. But it does link to the topic tonight, which is on nationalism, internationalism, and global sports. So let's welcome Mike, please, tell us Thanks very much, George. Um, I hope this is on and you can all hear me. Um, And thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm actually surprised at the size of the turnout given the tube strike, um, which I have to say is, is, uh, is, to throw in a gratuitous political comment, is one that we should all fully support and hope to see the RMT and the TSSA win this one for the sake of passengers in London. Uh, than having abused your attention by, by that political announcement. 
George mentioned that, uh, you know, this is the Ralph Miliband lectures, and it was because of my huge respect and admiration for Ralph Miliband in many ways, but especially as an internationalist, that I was very keen to, to give this talk. As I'm sure you all know, the, the Daily Mail decided last year that Ralph Miliband was the man who hated Britain. Well, 20 years ago, I wrote and published a book about English cricket called Anyone But England. Um, and I think the Daily Mail was probably, uh, would probably have chosen me as a better target in some ways. And Anyone But England was my response to what was at that time known as the Tebbit Test, because Norman Tebbit, Thatcherite Tory minister, um, had, had uh, argued that immigrants um, lacked loyalty to their new home in Britain because he asks, who do they support when England plays cricket against India or Pakistan? And, you know, so my answer to who do, who do I support is anyone but England, despite the fact that I am now a British citizen and have lived here for the vast bulk of my life. But perhaps some of this will become clear as I speak. We, we almost all here have lived through a, a quite remarkable era in the history of sport, which has massively globally expanded uh, to a degree and at a rate never seen before. Its presence, its visibility in our society, its economic and social importance have all increased many times over in the last 30 years, perhaps. And in fact, I'd suggest that that expansion and transformation of global sport is one of the salient and representative features of the neoliberal age in which, sadly, we still live. In particular, globalization as a strategy and as a rhetoric has been embraced by sports and sports body, bodies. 20 years ago or more, Rupert Murdoch described sports as a battering ram to enter emerging markets, India, China, Brazil, etc. And that has been proved uh, correct. And Murdoch News Corp has used cricket football, uh, American football, to build his empire in Asia, Europe, and America, um, to name but a few. And, in it, that, and sports bodies have been very keen to talk about their globalizing ambitions and how, in the jargon of the trade, they intend to grow their sports in emerging markets. Um, so you talk to so sports bodies and sports teams will talk about turning themselves into a global brand. This is commonplace talk about Manchester United or Chelsea. Um, the American National Football League and the National Basketball Association are mad keen on this idea of globalizing what still remain largely North American games. Um, FIFA chose to give the World Cups next few to, to Russia and Qatar very consciously and explicitly as part of a sort of globalizing mission. And I say mission because it's not just an economic strategy. It's also an ideological mission that they've given themselves. Um, and behind this, from listening to them, you'd almost think that sport and capitalism were more or less the same thing, two forms of competition which complemented each other. But what I want to suggest some like them, afraid, in this talk, is that, in fact, they're very different, and they run on contradictory lines, and they clash. 
the capitalist imperative and the sporting imperative, as I call them. However, it is true that there is a profound link between sports, modern sports, and capitalism. They emerge at the same time from the same society, which is England in the second half of the 18th century, more or less. Um, cricket is the first modern sport developing in the late 18th century, which is why, to this day, it remains, in some ways, one of the least apparently modern sports. It started earlier, and so it's marked by more features of the pre-modern era, particularly the time it takes to play. And cricket authorities have wrestled for 200 years with trying to fit that square peg in the round hole of the market, and they've never completely succeeded until IPL, which I'll talk about later. Um, But what makes cricket the first modern sport is that for the first time it has a universal codification, a single set of laws that apply in all places and to all players. It is accessible and intelligible uh, to anyone and it has a governing body which was the MCC which was founded in 1787 shortly before the other great revolutionary event of that time and um, it was This development of modern sport, initially in cricket, was one part of the broader process, which was famously described by E.P. Thompson, whereby English society became a capitalist society in the course of the 18th century. Land and labor were commodified, and the common law, i.e. the law passed by the parliament, became superseded all local and customary laws, rights, and regulations. And I think there's a good indication of precisely how that that worked if you think of the length of a cricket pitch. Cricket pitch is, and always has been, 22 yards. That's because 22 yards is the length known as a chain, a long time ago, before the metric system, obviously. Very English measurement. And a chain is so called because the 22 yards were the standard length of a surveyor's chain. And it's the surveyor's chain that carved up that through the process of enclosure and the commodification of property was the essential instrument of it. Now, of course, if 22 yards hadn't been a a viable distance over which to bowl a cricket ball, they would have found another measure. Um, The fact that we're still... Excuse me, we're still using that measure as a mark of cricket's early origin and its relation to early English capitalism. One of the things that happened when uh, traditional sports and games became modern, as with cricket, is of course they began to attract spectators. Prior to that, there were spectators, but they were drawn from the community from which the players were drawn. People went out to see their pals and mates from their village or workplace or whatever, play a game. From the late 18th century on, people go to see people they don't know play cricket and other sports. There's a new anonymity in it. And that is a big development. But perhaps the single most epical development for our purposes in this period is when, sometime in the 1780s, a man named Thomas Lord, founder of Lord's Cricket Ground, decided to put a fence around his cricket ground and charge admission. And that is the beginning of this absolutely huge industry we have today. Um, so, I'll talk a bit about that industry and some of its imbalances and peculiarities. The, the global sports industry, defined narrowly 
um, is grown by more than six or seven percent a year, and sometimes much more than that, for something like 30 years. Uh, and, you know, even in 2009, 2011, it still grew a bit, but at a slower rate. And it's estimated now, by one estimate, to be worth $135 billion. Everywhere, in all regions, it has grown consistently at a rate higher than GDP growth year on year. And, of course, that fact itself tells you that it is becoming more important, taking up a greater proportion of the economy. And the revenues that are calculated as part of the sports industry's, uh, global sports industry's base are basically gate receipts, corporate sponsorship, media rights, and merchandising, uh, of which sponsorship and media rights are forming an ever greater proportion. Gate receipts are mostly, but, but mainly in the United States and, and Britain, in fact, still the single largest uh, category of the four categories of income, but they are gradually being whittled down by the combined sponsorship and media rights. And sponsorship, in contrast to Britain and North America, is the biggest part, the biggest contributor to sports revenues throughout the BRIC countries in Asia and China. In China, it's 48% of all sports revenues come from corporate sponsorship. And, of course, that's bound to affect the profile of the sports and, indeed, their, their nature. Um, it's interesting that another mark of sort of global unevenness is that merchandising associated with sports, replica shirts and caps and all the other paraphernalia, globally is actually pretty insignificant uh, as a revenue generator, but not in North America, where it's one of the major revenue generators. And I read an interesting statistic that it's in North America that 71% of all sports, sports merchandise globally is sold. Um, and again, just as the corporate sponsorship of Asian sports will influence some characteristics of those sports, the big role of merchandising, you know, which is the most direct form of individual commodity consumption, is bound to have a ramification in North America and here. But... Um, I think that, but the, the, the narrow definition of sport industry doesn't do justice to its importance and scale. Because, of course, as I've described it, the sports industry is still much smaller than the mobile telephone industry, automotive industry, pharmaceutical industry. But if you look at the sports industry in its interrelationship with other industries, it is as important as those. Sports industry is intimately related to the footwear industry, obviously, and that's 200 billion a year, so that doubles its value virtually right away. Sportswear, sports equipment, it's a central driver in media industries, print, broadcast, and digital. Sports coverage is said to be one of the most widely viewed categories online, somewhere between pornography, which is the highest, and politics, which is lower. So that says something about our culture. Um, and also, it is a huge part of another big industry that we don't talk about much, which is gambling, legal and illegal. And according to one figure I read, the total amount bet on sports matches, legally or illegally, every year is between $700 billion and $1 trillion. So if you add, um, and, and most gambling, 
the great part of all gambling is tied to sports events for, for obvious reasons. Um, so it's important to see that the, the package of technological development and financial deregulation, which produces globalization in sport, is also what's fed the growth of the gambling industry globally. I think that the interesting thing about sport is that in relation to all these industries is it becomes a kind of intersection, a domain of intersection in which many parts of the capitalist economy uh, come together and feed off each other. And, you know, not surprisingly, it has also, as a result of playing that role, it's also a very, very powerful carrier of ideology. And I think that I have no way of of uh, verifying this through quantitative measurements. But I think if you just watch any sports event on television, you will find that it is riddled with messages attuned to the neoliberal ideology. Individual competitiveness is the purest expression of the human self, according to them. Um, the ideology of managerialism has taken a huge boost from the careers of Alex Ferguson, etc., because people have been led to believe that management is some secret art, some special form of expertise in winning, and that that expertise is transferable. And whether it's universities or quangos and many other institutions in our society besides football and sports clubs have adopted and reproduced this ideology. It's a very important part of our modern world and it's fundamentally misleading because even the, the best managers in the world cannot actually do more than is possible with the human material they have. Um, and this idea of the winning and losing division has been made so stark economically under neoliberalism and the sports slogans like you know coming second is is nothing the winner takes all attitude the whole structure of rewards and prizes in professional sport become very attenuated with huge huge rewards at the very top and then a weakening middle and a larger base and of course that is representative of our economic structure as a whole in Britain and America and throughout the capitalist world. <coughs> Nike, the, you know, the shoe manufacturer, is the perfect representative of this culture and this economy. It's, uh, I'm sure you know, of course, that its whole uh, development as a global corporation is closely tied in to the sports industries. So its strategy in that regard, its slogan, of course, is just do it, which pretty much sums up the amoral, uh, the amoral competitive and acquisitive individualism, which is so emphasized in our culture and become the dominant message. Um, and its strategy, its advertising, corporate strategy, sponsorship is principally to sponsor not only teams, but especially incredibly famous high value individuals. Messi, Michael Jordan, famously in the 90s in America. And in fact, it probably spends more money each year paying its roster of, say, 50 major sports celebrities than it pays in wages to all the workers who produce the shoes in the whole of Southeast Asia. That is very characteristic of the modern economy. Nike produces nothing. 
Nike has a 30 billion a year turnover. That's big. It only employs 22,000 people, almost exclusively in design and marketing. The production is entirely, I mean entirely, 100% outsourced to Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, China, Korea, Taiwan, etc. <clears throat> and that is a very characteristic uh, uh, neoliberal uh, uh, corporate strategy and corporate formation. So the value added that it acquires and that it accumulates is heavily dependent on marketing and advertising. And it wouldn't really exist without its sort of symbiotic relationship <coughs> with sports. Um, I said earlier that in the end, although there's an attempt to identify them, the capitalist imperative and the sporting imperative are fundamentally different and often at odds with each other. Um, capitalism in sport, contrary to the promises of globalization, does not create a level playing field, but rather a new range of inequalities and imbalances. It creates a fragmented and uneven playing field, if you like. And I think that's seen in a number of trends of recent years, which I'll try to identify quickly. First is the increasing dominance of the whole market by a few elite, mostly male, sports, and the consequent difficulties and marginalization of a large number of other sports which enjoyed strong local or traditional support. There is increasing pressure on all local and smaller scale sports events and bodies to find a place in this corporate world because so much of the revenue from media and sponsorship is taken up by football and you know four or five other big sports and international events. <clears throat> in Asia, where English Premier League football, as well as La Liga, etc., has become hugely popular, many people express a fear that this overwhelming popularity of European top-class football is actually stunting the growth of football at the base of places like India um, and Indonesia, because domestic competition is devalued. It's seen as almost nothing. Whereas, of course, football was developed in places like England entirely on the basis of the strength and loyalties to domestic clubs. So it's a, it's a very different situation. Another example is the sad fate of Pakistan hockey. Pakistan has an amazing tradition of hockey success, Olympic medals, world championships. It's a very prestigious tradition, and it has now become entirely marginalized by the dominance of cricket, which in South Asia plays the role that football does in Europe. So the Pakistan team recently won the Asian Champions Hockey Trophy, but it got a tiny, tiny fraction of the publicity for that achievement that the Pakistan cricket team, who won nothing, and of course are tainted by various scandals and allegations, received. And I'm told, sadly, by older Pakistani sports fans that these days, if you ask uh, a young Pakistani sports fan to name the captain of the hockey team, anyone know? Mohammed Imran. Um, <laughs> you don't lose any points for not knowing that. But the point I'm making is not only that you won't know it, but that an ordinary Pakistani sports fan will be able to name the whole of the Arsenal team 
but not name the, the captain of the Pakistan hockey team. And that is the result of these pressures of globalization, of neoliberal globalization, creating uh, in which the rich get richer, the market is concentrated and dominated by fewer and fewer forces, and the others, the mid-level and the modest and local level, get increasingly marginalized. And this, of course, is leading to a serious problem in European football, which UEFA is trying to deal with through what are called the financial fair play rules, which are supposed to be coming into effect now, though it remains extremely unclear what effect, if any, they'll have. And the idea is to rein in the huge financial disparity between the big clubs, Manchester City, Chelsea, etc., and in Spain, you know, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and the other clubs. And that's in the interest of the sport itself, uh, because a competition in which just two or three teams always win is too predictable, too limited, and it, the quality of it actually declines. It's, it is in it, the sporting imperative says that all the teams in a given competition must have access to more or less the same resources if it's going to be an exciting, unpredictable competition. The capitalist imperative says the opposite, that the resources go to the few, and that in turn corrupts and undermines the competitive framework of sport. <clears throat> and I think that the, this has all been illustrated almost too perfectly in recent weeks by the controversy involving the International Cricket Council, the ICC, which is the governing body of cricket. For those who don't know, what's happened is that the big three, which are India, England, and Australia, who between them overwhelmingly dominate cricket financially, are pushing the others very heavily for a major restructuring, both of revenues and decision-making, excuse me, within the ICC, which has always been a relatively weak governing body compared, say, to FIFA. And the basic idea is that the big three will take home a bigger share of the game's revenues, notably the media rights revenues, than they already do. They already take the bulk of it. Now they're going to take even more. And that means there will be less for other countries. And that is a classic pattern of distribution upward, with which we're familiar from the British economy and the American economy and elsewhere. Um, but here it's, it's an attempt to make it, to impose it systematically in cricket. Organizationally, what the big three want to do is to establish a new executive committee of world cricket in which the Indian board, the English board, and the Australian board would be permanent members, like the great powers of the Security Council, there would be one other member from one of the smaller nations who would be appointed by the big three. This executive committee would appoint the head of the Financial and Commercial Affairs Committee, which really has the power in cricket, as well as the chairman of the ICC, and it would supersede all the existing decision-making structures. So this is a, uh, where the impact of globalization, which has enhanced the value of cricket in India and Australia and England, has led to the decline in the democratic and inclusive nature of the sport's governance, whereas it was assumed 20 years ago that the opposite will happen. 
And one of the ironies of this is people who follow cricket will know that for, I don't know, 20 years, English cricket administrators and English cricket um, and Australian cricket commentators have been moaning about the Asian dominance, and particularly the Indian dominance of cricket. It is really a, a, a very tiring theme. And cricket itself, world cricket up till now, has been broadly divided in the modern period between an Anglo-Australian axis on the one hand and an Asian axis led by India on the other hand. This represents the complete breakup of that. And I have to just say, I do find it laughable and amusing, the smoothness and ease with which money enables all these administrators to abandon any ideas of collegiality or geographical loyalty or proximity. I mean, Pakistan has given India the most constant support in cricket terms over many years, and now they're just being thrown out by the Indians because it's, all that matters is money. And all that terrible, you know, chuntering about uh, how the Indians make decisions in cricket and how bad it is seems to have been forgotten because England and Australia are now on side with them, and they've all agreed, basically, that they are together going to take a bigger share of the pie. Um, so the proposals... Oh, and it's interesting. Another point I want to make is about the competition, which is important, again, to see the impact of globalization on sport. What they're proposing, the big three, is that um, they get rid of the established tours program, which did require all the test countries to play each other home and away somewhat regularly. From now on, the big three will simply decide who they want to play. And that will mean that countries like New Zealand, West Indies, etc., will have less income, and they are already struggling to survive. So I think it, it could well be that this is the harbinger of, of the marginalization of cricket in those countries. <clears throat> So instead of the tours program, and instead of the idea of a world test championship, which had been mooted for quite a few years and looked very attractive, they scrapped that, they're going to have a kind of, they want to have a kind of system of promotion and relegation um, in test cricket, which sounds appealing until you realize the catch. It's actually written into the proposals that whatever happens, India, England, and Australia will never be relegated. And the proposal gives these words to justify that. It says, this is solely in order to protect ICC income due to the importance of those markets and teams to prospective ICC media rights buyers. So the entire shape of the competition is no longer determined by things like an even and balanced competition or even an entertaining one but entirely by the competition for media rights. So the proposals as a whole will widen the gap between the rich and the poor, and the countries that need subsidy and, and redistribution the most will get the least. Um, the other big transformative factor, which is related to this in global cricket, is the Indian Premier League, which is a 2020 league um, played for about two and a half months in the spring in India. And it attracts senior players from all over the world who get paid far more for a couple of months doing that than they get paid in several years of playing test cricket for their country. Um, and, but I think the really significant thing about the IPL is not so much the 2020 format, which you might like or dislike, 
but is what's really new in it is for the first time in cricket, the major competing entities, the teams, are privately owned. That, of course, is absolutely common in football and North American sports and so forth, but it's been unknown in cricket until now, where people played either for national associations, like the England board, or for county or domestic associations, which are membership clubs. So these are now, so what the Indian Cricket Board has done is auction off, sell off franchises exclusively in each of the big cities to private investors who now own the cricket teams. And that, in a sense, um, that's bound to have far more impact on the future of the game than I think just the shortening of the format. It's got to. And one of the reasons that it presents a crisis for cricket is that the cricket schedule is already very crowded. And so the question is, where is the room for 2020? But instead of asking that, people say, what do we have to sacrifice for 2020? Because it's the big money spinner. And while at the moment the line is, we're going to keep chess cricket and just get rid of the 50 overs game, I don't believe that. When such a disproportionate, wildly disproportionate amount of money in the game is in the IPL and the similar 2020 commercial leagues starting in other places, that is bound to shape the way players develop their talents, the way they pursue their careers, and the whole weight of the game. And I think Test Cricket, which I I hugely love and think is one of the most wonderful things human beings have ever created, I I do think has a very doubtful future. I know people who don't share that with me won't lament it, but hope you at least can see the point I'm making about how neoliberal capitalist growth has created this situation. Um, The IPL makes a big deal about being a global brand. They want to imitate the English Premier League, the EPL, by becoming a cricketing version of that and selling their replica shirts and so forth all over the world. I think that's always been a bit hubristic, um, but that is, that is what they think. Um, it's in, I think one of the crucial things it offers, though, remember that India is by far the biggest cricket market, is that whoever wins the IPL, India wins. And India gets the thrill of buying up globally all the best talent in the world. The sort of thing that European football has done in South America and Africa for some years. This is what they're doing now. Um, But there is a lacuna really significant in this global pretense. And that is no Pakistani players are allowed to play in the IPL. And there are plenty of good 2020 Pakistani players, without a doubt. That is not because of the government. It's not even because of the Indian Cricket Board. This is the decision of the franchise owners and their sponsors that having a Pakistan player in a team in India will in some way compromise their status as national icons or in some way invite hostility. And I'm not totally sure that's true, but the important thing is they think it's true. And it's really a pretty amazing gaping hole in a sport that boasts endlessly about its global reach and which serves the Indian elite as a kind of symbol of their new status in the global economy, but they can't play with the country next door. And that brings up the issue of how national identity has been affected by the globalization of sport. You might think 
that globalization in sport would devalue national identity. We create a wonderful global level playing field where we're all friendly and we're not really worried about national identities because we're all subject to the same economic forces. Just the opposite happens. International sporting events, the World Cup, the Olympics, also the Ashes to some extent, um, attract huge numbers of people who don't regularly watch those sports because they are told that it has something to do with them because they're English and this team is called England or they're India and this team is called India. So they are given or assigned an investment in a contest that they might not otherwise be interested in. And the media, the sponsors, the sports body itself and the state all collude to convince people, and you can see this during the European Cup or the World Cup in England, it's, it's written very large, they all collude to convince people that the fate of the England team is somehow actually hugely important to them. And they do that because that makes the viewing figures larger, which makes the advertising revenues larger, which enables you to charge more for sponsorship. Profit maximization is now the only driving goal of the principal sports bodies, not competition maximizing. And as I've indicated, I hope those two move in separate directions. I want to talk, there's not too much time left, but I then want to talk about another um, a division, global division, that globalization has not closed. It's the biggest, most obvious bifurcation in global sports, and that is that people in North America want to play an entirely different set of team sports than the rest of the world. You might think that that would have eroded over the years, but despite a few efforts both ways to promote sports, spoke NFL and NBA in England, say, and to promote cricket or football in America, overwhelmingly, the economic development of the game, both inside North America and outside, has made the existing cultural centers, in America's case, baseball, American football, basketball, in Britain's case, football, cricket, rugby, etc., has made those more valuable, more important, because all that matters is the sheer scale of the audience and how quickly and easily you can get to them. Now, why American sports ever became so different from the rest is one of the most interesting questions in sports history, and I've never actually seen a completely, uh, a completely satisfying explanation for this. Uh, basically, it's a post-Civil War, post-1865 development in the United States, late 19th and early 20th century. Baseball supplants cricket. American football is, uh, reform is derived from the same set of handling and running ball games as rugby and football, but very quickly develops its own rules. And of course, basketball is actually invented on spec in the United States in, I think, 1895 or thereabouts. Um, and one of the arguments about this, which I find very, very unsatisfying, is the assertion that these sports became popular in America because somehow they're more American. This, of course, answers no questions. What on earth makes them more American? I mean, Americans will say they're competitive. Yeah, all sports are competitive. There's no difference there. There's just as much aggression um, and, and partisanship in, in other sports. I mean, I would say that English league football makes even baseball look a bit tame. Um, and my own 
provisional suggestion of an explanation is actually the roots are ideological. That the ideology of American exceptionalism, the idea that the United States has a particular and unique destiny and a culture of its own that is also a universal culture to which all others should aspire, I think this led them to actually deliberately develop under the aegis of what was it that the robber baron era of American capitalism, a time of huge rapid economic development, to assert and organize their own sports. Nothing inherent in the sports itself. I, I really think that's a, virtually a mystical idea that we should, we should get rid of. But as it's developed, it is astonishing to see some of the strange and distinctive features of American sport. I mean, the obvious one that I'm sure you've seen, of course, is cheerleaders, which is institutionalized. That starts in high school, goes through college to the pros. Um, it's a participatory institution or practice, whatever else you think of it. Um, the other is the playing of the national anthem before all domestic contests of any level, high school, university, professional, whereas here you will only get that in international games. Uh, and that, again, is uh, an indication of that American sports embody American exceptionalism. And, of course, the very weird thing of using higher education as a nursery systematically for professional sports, which mostly doesn't happen elsewhere, and that higher education sports are themselves hugely commercialized. I think the most, uh, the most highly paid uh, university faculty member in the United States is probably the football head coach of the University of Texas, who when I last checked was on three and a half million a year. So even our more exorbitantly paid vice chancellors have, have a way to go for that. Um, there, there, is a, there is a tension between, I, I just, you may have seen the Super Bowl recently, which I think illustrated a lot of that. And of course the Super Bowl is supposed to be the world championship of football, American football, just like the World Series is the world championship of American baseball, paradox being there, competed for entirely between North American teams. And this fits in with the American exceptionalist idea that we are the world and the rest is a deviation. And if you've spent time in the United States, you'll, you'll recognize that. And the Super Bowl this year, I noticed, combined, it was very emphatic about it's uh, the patriotism, and particularly the militarist patriotism. Lots of stuff about Afghan soldiers, American soldiers in Afghanistan and returning from Afghanistan. And it was fascinating to see how the corporate media, sports, and political state interests all converged on tying in football with the American effort in Afghanistan. And, and I did find it slightly obscene. But it could only happen in North American sports because any other supreme global event in world sports, no one country or one empire could completely take over without even a, a sort of apology or an explanation. Um, the global sports industry would, of course, like everything in sports to be entirely predictable. If they had their way, they'd rather know in advance who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's going to score the goals, who's going to score 100. Because every time they invest in sponsorship, it's a bit risky. So Nike found that, you know, initially first Tiger Woods and then Oscar Pistorius, they spent a lot of money on that, 
but actually the associations may actually have been detrimental to them. Similarly, when the Indian team doesn't do as well in cricket, the viewing figures are lower and the advertising rates drop. And the great thing about sport is, of course, that it is unscripted. And what's so horrible about match fixing or spot fixing is it undermines that essential unpredictability, which is the bedrock of sports, and it makes you wonder if what you're seeing is authentic or not. Because to the extent it's scripted, it ceases to be sport and becomes a rather poor form of art or entertainment. <coughs> and no matter how many, and so, but I often think that if they had their way, the sponsors and the sports bodies would actually like sport to be like professional wrestling, so-called WWE, which is entirely scripted. But of course, because it's entirely scripted, it, it's very popular, hugely, surprisingly popular, but uh, it, doesn't, it will never attract the kind of mainstream cross-class audiences that major sports do. Um, and of course, as what they really hate about the unpredictability of sports is not only injury, bad luck, and all the vagaries that make sports what they are and which they would like to strip out of sports, because it makes their return on investment uncertain. Even more is the political interference, and that they have always been united. It's amazing that people for whom sport is nothing but a money machine are the first to say that politics should have nothing to do with sport. And it's, it's of course, always been bankrupt. Politics is, sport has played in the real world, and it cannot help but be affected and uh, inflected by that. And just quickly to end, because it's spoken for a while, I wanted to run through a number of the immediate current examples or places where sport remains a terrain of social and political struggle, much to the discomfort of the international sports bodies or sports sponsors. And immediately day after tomorrow, the Sochi Winter Olympics is an obvious one. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, many others are united entirely with Putin in desperately not wanting the question of lesbian and gay equality to disrupt these games. I don't know what will happen. I would really love to see some medal winner somewhere stand up on the podium and do what Smith and Carlos did in 1968. You all know that image, the famous Black Power salute. Now, of course, what they were doing, they weren't protesting against the host nation. They were protesting against their own nation, the United States, in the interest, in the name of international cause, the international cause of anti-imperialism and anti-racism. <clears throat> what we might see at Sochi, and I think it will be hugely significant, is a statement of another international cause, the international cause of lesbian and gay equality, which has actually had very, very few international platforms or forums, despite how widespread and, and universal the movement is. And it could be that Sochi is yet again a time when the universalism of sport is turned against its economic globalization in the interests of true human universality and human rights. Um, in the, later in the year, we're having the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, where the Scottish people are, and a lot of local people have already criticized the regeneration so-called plan there because it involves the familiar combination of social cleansing of working class people and the construction of 
boutique industries and luxury flats all built around some, some very you know, uh, posh athletic facilities. Also, Atos, which is the multinational company that has carried out the barbaric assessments of people with disabilities on behalf of the British government, is, as it was for the Summer Olympics in London, is a formal sponsor of the Commonwealth Games. That's been heavily challenged by people with disabilities and activist groups, but I'm afraid to say the Glasgow City Council rejected it. Their Labour majority voted 100% to keep the Atos sponsorship. And I suppose that's a comment a little bit on the younger Miller band that we mentioned earlier, but I'll stay off that. <laughs> but I think the biggest, um, certainly most violent, disturbing, current terrain of sports struggle is Egypt. It's often said that the mob, that under the authoritarian regimes of Mubarak in Egypt and also in Tunisia and elsewhere, the mosque provided the safe space, the readout for dissent. And I, I, that's clearly true. But so did the football fans and the football clubs. And of course they were secular. And the football ultras in Egypt as they call and they're actually organized, they belong to various clubs. Ultra doesn't mean ultra-violent or ultra-aggressive, it just means that they're very militantly committed to their team. The biggest team is Ali in Cairo, it's the biggest uh, club in African football, um, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And Ali ultras and supporters played a very big role in the 2011 revolution, they're on the street, not least because they had several years of experience of street fighting and conflict with the police, and they knew how to do it. All the subsequent events, of course, have been horribly tragic, but one of the continuities in this is that the football ultras of Al-Ali have protested against Morphy, Morsi, Mubarak, Morsi, and the current military regime, um, which shows that they are more ideologically consistent, I think, than a lot of the intellectual uh, intelligentsia, liberal intelligentsia of Egypt. At the middle of this is the Port Said story. And I'll finish with this. This is a long... It, it should be ranked with Hillsborough as one of the most appalling and criminal tragedies ever to happen at a sports event or around a sports event. In February 2012, it's about a year after the, the revolution, <clears throat> there was a riot at Port Said Stadium. Port Said is near the Suez Canal in Egypt uh, at the end of a Premier League match between Al-Masri, which is the local club, and Al-Ali, the famous Cairo club. 79 people were killed and 1,000 injured when, it's alleged, thousands of Al-Masri supporters, and I stress the, that that's an allegation, invaded the pitch and the other uh, terraces with swords and knives and bricks and bottles. Police, according to eyewitnesses in both the Egyptian and Western media, the police, the stadium authorities did nothing. In fact, they let in unticketed so-called fans from outside towards the end of the game they didn't search them, which happens if you go to a football match in Britain and most places. And they closed the exit through which the Ali fans, the visiting fans, 
could leave. So there are actually quite a few parallels with Hillsborough. Big difference, of course, is this has an ideological and, and political element because the Al-Ali fans were identified with the anti-Mubarak, anti-military protesters of Tahrir Square 2011. And many commentators, and, and certainly many Al-Ali fans, say that the attack on them was deliberately done by the, the secret state, the deep state, which now is overtly the state again in Egypt, the military and the police, um, as retaliation for the role they played in democratizing the country. Um, then, as I said, all these people died. A number, there was then a roundup of al-Masri supporters in Port Said by the same authorities who had allowed various people to go in and assail the al-Ali fans. And that ended up um, with a court case. And in January of 2013, a year ago, the court sentenced 21 al-Masri defenders to death. And I, you know, I was actually in Egypt when this happened, and I really couldn't think of sports fans anywhere, ever, being subject to that kind of collective brutal punishment. In response, people in Port Said rose up in indignant protest because they feel that they have been scapegoated for something that the state did and that it's quite possible. It's possible some of these 21 are guilty. It's quite possible that none of them are. In that protest, two years after the original horror, another 33 people died. Government killed 33, this time al-Masri Port Said people instead of al-Ali Cairo people, the same people. Um, and then when they had the funerals of those people a few days later, seven more people were shot, mostly by snipers. And in the end, an emergency martial law was imposed on Port Said. Um, FIFA is supposed to have a duty of care to all sports supporters. But like all sports organizations, they put that so low on their priorities that it's kind of sickening. All this happened to ordinary sports fans in Egypt. Murder, destruction of their lives, the abuse of their love for their team by political forces. And yet international sport just rolls on like nothing happened. No one will mention the martyrs of Port Said in the Brazil World Cup this summer. But I would like to say at the opening ceremony of that World Cup, all the flags of the countries are half-mast. Not to make a statement about which side you support in Egypt, but to make a statement about the value of the human lives that were lost in the sports fixtures in Egypt. Okay, I'll end there. Thank you very much for your patience. Well, that was fantastic. I hope everyone was as captivated as, as I was. I learned a huge amount and have a huge amount I could ask, but will try and restrain myself so that you who have listened patiently will get a chance to do so. Uh, the acoustics in this room are very poor, so if you could use the mics that my two wonderful helpers will, will provide for you, it will help and it will also help us up here hear what you have to say. So let's take... Uh, a couple of questions. There's one there and one there. Do you want to just wait for the mic? If you could identify yourself, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Hello. 
Hi, uh, my name is Tom. I'm from an organization called Football Beyond Borders. Um, we do a lot of work uh, around politicizing football fans, uh, sports fans in general, and kind of bridging the gap between sports and politics uh, for social reasons as well, for, for doing social projects, for, for being involved in the grassroots, for fighting back against the corporate dominance of the game and so on. Um, we started off at Sawaz University nearby um, and we went on different international tours just as a group of students initially. Um, and now we've got to the point where we're becoming a charity and kind of trying to become uh, an influential organization uh, that can kind of fight back, but at a more, uh, at a higher level, basically. But what we're kind of trying to do and what I'd like to ask you is, how can we um, mobilize people at grassroots level? Because I believe grassroots is a real, you know, important part of this to understand the dangers of organizations like FIFA and to kind of fight back against this corporate monopoly of sports uh, and how can we get people to realize that sports and politics do mix they're constantly mixing like you were saying uh, and that actually they well FIFA and so on and these corporations control when and when sports and politics mix supposedly and when they don't um, how can we take back that power and how can we help to mobilize people and, and awaken them to this I'll, I'll take that one just now. Um, the, the answer is that I wish, I wish I knew the answer because you are asking the single most important question. Everything else I've said leads to that question. What can we do about it? How can we mobilize grassroots fans to fight back against corporate control and you know, the dehumanization of sport? And you've mentioned you know, football beyond borders and, and there are actually all kinds of organizations mostly small and under-resourced in many countries that trying to somehow enfranchise within sports all the disenfranchised supermajority of people who just watch it and pay for it but have no power over it. I, I don't know how best to do it. I know that it's something we have to do and I'm very keen to support anyone else's efforts to do it. Um, but of course, and, and I've been involved in things like that over the years. I was involved in a campaign called Hit Racism for Six in cricket. And it is incredibly hard to get anything more than the tokenistic attention from sports authorities or indeed from the big sports media. And they will, the media will work and always does work over time, sports broadcasters, to keep out of sight any political banners or any political gestures. I think one thing that would help, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, is if more sports, famous sports competitors spoke out. I've got to say, it's a pretty poor show for the British football players in all four professional divisions that, as far as I know, not one spoke out against the Iraq war. More, more American athletes speak out on politics than European athletes, actually far more. Uh, that's an interesting tradition, and it's partly to do with the fact that one of the really distinctive things about American sports that I didn't mention, should have, is that it has the highest degree of unionization in the world of sports by miles. The Major League Baseball Players Association is completely a classic trade union. It goes on strike, it negotiates contracts, it has a democratic structure, um, it's tough, and it wins. And as a result, the members of that union must surely have the highest 
average wage of any trade union members in the world. I think it's close to $2 million a year now. But they got that by trade union militancy, coupled with the fact that they have a very special and irreplaceable skill, which, because of globalization, has become ever, ever more, more valuable. It's one of the interesting things that trade sports unionism is so weak in this country. I mean, the, the Professional Footballers Association is, is actually uh, very active, plays a, mostly a very good role, but it's not remotely as strong as their counterparts in the United States. Now, strong player unions don't necessarily mean that players will come out and actually fight for the fans. Mostly they don't do that. But it does mean that players who want to do that, who want to speak out on politics, get some protection. Whereas, um, if you go to India, the absolute terror of any of the Indian cricketers, and these guys are all multimillionaires, so you'd think they'd feel comfortable and easy giving an opinion, just the opposite. Sachin Tendulkar spent many, many years keeping his mouth very, very tightly shut. And that is one of the reasons that the Indian media and the Indian elite fawn on him. Um, so one of the problems with globalization, to come back to your question, is that as the sports stars get richer and richer and more dependent on corporate sponsorship, less and less likely to speak out. No real excuse for that, because frankly anyone can speak out if they just put aside the ridiculous non-human requirement of having $2 million a year. Not a sacrifice to give that up. So I think the prospects for what you're talking about are very difficult, and I'd like to explore it more. But I do think it's a, a central political task, and for the left in general, not just a specialist task for those of us who are you know, benighted sports lunatics. Thanks, Mike. The lady here. Um, hello, Hermione Mackay. Um, thank you for such an interesting talk. I wonder if you'd like to comment um, on um, perhaps there is a link between the uh, big money involved in sport and the relative invisibility of um, female superstars. Um, the ones you've mentioned are men, and I have to admit, yeah. I've racked my brains and I can't think of a kind of female global superstar in sport. So is yeah. there a link, and what is it? Yeah, that's, that's a central question. In my original talk, it was mentioned here, but I went too quickly past it. I talked about the way that neoliberal globalization in sport has created these inequalities and imbalances between the rich and the poorer teams, the big teams, the marginal sports, but also between they have reinforced and extended the inequality between male and female sports. It's true that the Olympics, Summer Olympics at least, does act as a tremendous promoter of women's sports. You know, but every four years, I hear the same spiel from sports commentators. Well, this has really put women's sports on the map because for a few days, we're all excited. And then nothing changes. Why? Because sponsorship money, without which you cannot run a professional sport anymore, is attracted to those sports which already have the biggest viewers and which have the greatest... Uh, uh, opportunity, in their view, to have even more. And so male football, male cricket, attracts ever more money, and women's football, women cricket, and other women's sports, with a few exceptions, have to trail along in their wake and don't get as much money. I think one good thing, good idea, and I, I really hate giving 
the ICC or the cricket boards any credit for anything. But the, uh, the recent thing of playing the male 2020 Australia-England the same day after the women's 2020, I think is a great idea. For one thing, you actually get to see a decent six hours of cricket rather than a cheap 2020, you know, two, two and a half or three hours. And it seems to me, it hasn't been done before, and it both respects the autonomy of women's sports and develops its own excellence, but gets it exposed to a wider audience. But that is the exception and not the rule. And I remember talking to some <clears throat> professional, would-be professional women cricketers, and most England women cricketers have other jobs or live through small-scale sponsorships, either state, government, or, or corporate. So they're paid a fraction of what their male counterparts were, but there's no question over this, this winter who was the better cricket team. I mean, it's not even close. The England women's team actually won the Ashes, and the England men's team was probably the worst performance by a cricket team in my lifetime. So, and sadly, people aren't going to draw the lessons from that. They cost... You know, for the same reason that corporate capitalism does not liberate women in general, but actually exploits their bodies to sell products to men and to women, it isn't going to create equality in sports. That has to be created by social political interventions. Final point on that is one of the biggest sports in America for women is what they call soccer, football. And the American women's soccer team unlike the American men's soccer team, actually has some pretty impressive achievements to its credit. That is because in the 1970s, as a result of pressure from the women's movement, the United States Congress passed something called Title IX, which insists that all sports bodies which receive federal grants, and that includes most colleges and so forth, have to put equal resources into women's sport. So it was only state intervention driven by a popular movement that enabled women footballers, soccer players in America to achieve some sort of global ranking. And in the absence of that, the market will prevail and the market will make men's sports bigger and bigger and women's sports, with a few exceptions like tennis, more and more marginal. Well, tennis is the exception, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I guess the Williams sisters were probably yeah. the only global stars on that, on that kind of level. Mm -hmm. There's a few heads, I'll, I'll put you down with this, this red jacket, and then here, and then you, and then you. So maybe we'll take two together if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, that's okay. Times so red jacket and then black jacket. So, uh, hi, Charlie here. Um, you touched on financial regulation when you mentioned the financial fair play regulations. Um, and I think there's undoubtedly a move towards it. It's mentioned in the latest Concord Agreement, uh, domestic cricket and, and European rugby. They're all moving towards financial regulation. What do you think is the future for, for financial regulation in sport and how necessary do you think it will be for the sustainability of sport in the future? Let's take it up. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Austin. Thanks for such a great talk. Um, so I have a question about international sporting events, uh, World Cup, uh, Olympics, etc. So I pretty much just uh, started paying attention with the Summer Olympics in, in, uh, in China. 
Uh, so maybe you could add some historical perspective on this. Um, but there seems to be a bit of an arms race with the cost of hosting these events. Um, I know that the Winter Olympics in Russia right now has a price tag of about $50 billion. So I was wondering, uh, what's driving this sticker shock, this increasing price tag? Is it the profit maximization from industry that you're that you were just uh, talking about, or is it more uh, local governments and people wanting to assert a form of pride and nationalism with the increasing internationalism? So you just like, kind of missed a bit of that, so I'm a little hard of hearing. Why are they becoming much more expensive? Why? Besides, right. What is it? Such what is 50, it that's driving 50, it? Yeah. We'll take one more question. One more. Um, yeah, my name's Ian. Um, how corrupt was the awarding of the, uh, the World Cup to uh, Russia and Qatar? Was it down to the merit of the bids, or was it just pure corruption? Sure. sure. <laughs> I was asking about Kevin Peterson yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, I'll just uh, deal fairly quickly, if I can, with those. I mean, first on the fair, financial fair play regulations, they are being mooted and adopted in, in, in many, at least, European leagues. And it's worth noting that they have been, in effect, um, adopted many years before in North American sports. The Major, Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL all have systems of redistribution in place. It isn't that they don't have some very wealthy, exceptionally wealthy clubs. But, for example, through the draft pick system each year, the lowest-ranked team in one year gets the first choice of the talent coming in. Um, there is redistribution of revenues. There are salary caps. And there's a lot of argument among the, between the players and managers and owners about how this should work. But it is striking that it's in North America, the home of uh, liberal individualism, that this redistributionist and egalitarian model is actually most developed. And that's because the cartel that runs baseball, and it is a cartel of individual capitalists and corporations, managed to work out that unless they had unpredictability each year, unless they had relatively even competition among more than two or three teams, the value of their product would decline. UEFA, the Premier League, are still struggling with this, and, and that is because, although there is the redistributionist impulse arising from the sporting imperative, the desire to have good sports, competitive sports, and unpredictable sports, that is still overwhelmed by the capitalist imperative, which is to accumulate the most money in a single place at one time. And so I don't think in football, I don't know, but I don't think that in football the financial fair play is going to do that. Um, it will rein in a little bit Manchester City, but not enough to really in any way close the gap between them and a team like Sunderland or West Ham or Norwich. So I think we need financial fair play, but we actually need a lot other redistributive and corrective mechanisms to ensure that each division, each league of whatever sport is genuinely competitive. And as I indicated about cricket, it's actually going the other way. Why is it becoming more expensive? Sochi is mind-blowing in $50 billion that London Olympics was for the Summer Olympics, which are a game with more participants than the Winter Olympics cost a fraction of that. And as you know, they didn't exactly skimp on that. I think one reason it's become more expensive um, 
is because the demands of the various, of the International Olympic Committee, first of all, as well as the other, the IAAF and the other sports governing bodies have become ever more demanding. They want better facilities, they want better uh, homes for their, for their competitors, they require better access roads. So with each passing Olympic Games, the IOC asks for more and more and more from the host country. The other issue in Sochi, and it's speculative, is that the prices have been inflated by corruption and cronyism, uh, that many of the contracts have gone to people associated with the Putin regime, and therefore they're playing, the, the, the Russian public is paying over the odds for them. Um, I think that will continue to happen, but I, I, I suspect that Sochi will remain as a bit of a, of a high for a while, because it's so much more than the others. How corrupt was the World Cup award to Russia and Qatar? I mean, this is, you know, speculative. I think like everyone else, as soon as I heard it, I thought, that sounds a bit off. Um, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see it from the Qatar perspective. You know, Qatar is a petrol state, which now, through its sovereign wealth funds, is seeking to establish a global economic presence and project what's called soft power. And sports and media are the ways it does it. So it set up Al Jazeera, and Al Jazeera itself is now expanding its sports coverage, seeking to buy sports networks in the United States, because they know, like Rupert Murdoch, that it's the battering ram to enter the market. But the biggest, so for Qatar, getting the World Cup was, the Football World Cup was a huge coup. It's exactly what they wanted. I have no doubt that they used every resource available to them to lobby that. Subsequent reports make it very clear that there are large numbers of the FIFA Governing Council, FIFA World Council, who, who yeah, I mean, I, you know, if I say this on television, I'll get sued, but who are definitely uh, dodgy and have clearly taken money um, to influence their decisions one way or the other. It fit in, however, I think the driving thing for FIFA in terms of Russia and Qatar was not bribery or corruption, may have been oiled by that, but what I refer to as their globalizing vision. They want to grow football in the Middle East. Why? No one ever asks. But somehow it's assumed that this is inherently a good thing for football and a good thing for the Middle East. And the consequences of, of that ideologically decis driven decision, as it were, was a classic example of capitalist hubris. No one actually noticed in that extensive debating process that it's very hot in Qatar in the summer, and that in fact so hot that it will probably be dangerous to play football there. But hey, the weather, time zones, oceans, Global capital sees those as things that can just be swept away. But every once in a while, and increasingly, they come back to bite them. And of course, the worst thing about Qatar is the deaths of construction workers. And I'd say, along with the Port Said incident I met, mentioned, this is the most horrible scandal in world sports at the moment. You know, you probably read the Guardian uh, exclusive, which showed that 193 Nepalese construction workers died on site in the last year. That's just the Nepalis. The total, because they take guest laborers from India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh, and so forth, um, as well as Nepal, is well over a thousand. And it's 2022 that these are being held. We've got eight more years of this. 
And I would have thought that the absolute priority for anyone who doesn't care only about FIFA's glory and grandeur, but who cares about football, is to put an end to this immediately and insist that from today, standards of safety and workers' rights become the priority in culture. Now, if that would happen, it would transform the political economy of Qatar, which is why they all resist it like mad. But we really face the, the reality at the moment that the World Cup in 2022 will be literally played on fields soaked with blood, not a metaphor. And uh, I think that's something that ought to be pretty unacceptable to everyone who, who watches sport. Happening to a lesser extent in Brazil as well. Yeah, oh, exactly. They've already had huge protests in Brazil about the imbalances spread by the Olympic spending program. Yeah. I get. Can I, Go ahead. Yeah. So you you've kind of answered this in in the previous question actually about I'm kind of getting at whether then I mean FIFA's uh, the what they want to tell you is that you know sport has, has the power for good, and I guess the question is firstly do you think that an event like a World Cup or an Olympics does have the power for good in a country, and if it does, where would you award an Olympic Games or the World Cup? And then in the green jacket here, please. The last round, so if you've yeah. got a question that you're dying to ask, then put your hand up and we may consider it. You first. Hi, um, my name is Ahmed. Uh, thank you very much for an interesting talk. Um, going back to the Winter Olympics in Sochi, when uh, they were awarded, Putin came up with a statement saying um, that finally Russia became back to the global stage. And currently there's a lot of billboards in Russia from state-owned companies mentioning today's Sochi, tomorrow the world. So a lot of emphasis on, on nationalism, as you alluded. Now there's also an um, increased threat of terrorism activity um, that um, um, a lot of commentators are saying and, and that have happened in the past few months. Now, God forbid, you know, something like this could happen. What implications could it have on the status of Russia in the world, or will it have any implications? Thanks. Why don't we finish up on those two small questions? Yeah, that, that'll be a bit easier. Pretty much the future of the world. Yeah, uh, and it gives me time to conclude my points, which is great. Global, can, can these global sporting events be for the good of the community, the host community, or perhaps for anyone else is the question. And of course, you know, theoretically, yeah, I think they can be. And I think um, we should aim to redesign and reinvent these events so that they are. To do that, we have to loosen the corporate grip on football, cricket, athletics, Olympic sports, ice skating, whatever, so that when the Olympics or the World Cup are designed, they are democratically designed and designed at a minimum of expense, whereas the maximum is because they're, they're usually profit, they're profit engines for the construction industry, for finance, for catering, for security. If you push all that aside and ask how will these things or how can these events interact with a local economy um, and with a local community, then I think a lot of things become possible because, you know, sport has a universality. Once I, I mentioned this before, um, its universality, however, pushes in the opposite direction from economic or financial globalization. 
And so to get to the universality of sport where it can actually be of social benefit, we have to cancel out uh, or counteract that other <coughs> capitalist imperative with sports. You're not going to have the two together. At most, you'll have a, a few concessions. I mean, actually, for the Olympics, I think it's long since time that this was dismantled. I think we should have... It, it, it is too expensive, too demanding in a host city to host so many different sports, and it's accumulated from its original fairly small numbers of sports. It's accumulated so many other sports um, that it's become unwieldy. And if it was smaller, say mainly just athletics and boxing, and then you could divide it up. You could do the swimming here, the weightlifting there, the athletics here, the boxing there, maybe all in the same two-week period. We'd love it. Wouldn't harm TV spectators, but you know who'd hate it, is the, you know, the corporations, the media broadcasters, the sponsors, completely fragments everything they do, means they have to spend more to get a return on their investment. So sadly, it's not going to happen. But the mega events have outgrown all but a few mega cities. And there are lots of cities that aren't mega cities that could make wonderful host sites um, for, for Olympic Games and World Cups. Um, the question about Sochi and terrorism, the implications for Russia, I mean, again, this is the sort of irony of the Russian policy, is that they are willing to spend the $50 billion on the Olympics, willing to put all their resources into making this a huge global event because they, they see it as building Russian prestige, soft power, economic power. But if there is an untoward or violent event, or a political event, or any of the various things that cannot be controlled entirely even by an authoritarian police force, then it may well be that that 50 billion investment won't really pay off for the Russian economy or even for Putin, uh, you know, politically. So I'll end making this point, which I think is quite important, that if you look at all the things that are associated with modernity, and I know, I'm looking at a lot of students here, you'll have had that concept pushed down your throat probably more than you want. But whether it's, if you think of democracy, secularism, capitalism, industrialism, individualism, the scientific worldview, so on and so forth, the feature associated with modernity that has been by far the most quickly, readily embraced and has encountered the least resistance is modern sport. I mean, by far, all those other features have been and continue to be resisted. People gobble up modern sport, and that is because it has this universal accessibility and intelligibility. You don't have to speak a common language or have a common culture to play a common sport. But the sad thing is that, so there is, I think, that promise of equality and universality in sports, the level playing field to which all of us, everyone who participates, works in the same conditions and under the same rules. But our economy, our economic system, is the opposite of that. It generates inequality. Um, and in doing that, it hasn't got rid or erased or eroded 
national identity, national chauvinism, chauvinism, racism, bigotry of all kinds. Although things like UEFA are constantly, and, and the cricket authorities constantly like to claim that it does, that it brings everyone together. But the reality is that because, for example, the India-Pakistan cricket rivalry, you know, if you think Spurs versus Arsenal is serious, really, you're, you're, you're very tired. This is the most it's not only the biggest revenue spinner, it's also the most dangerous rivalry in world sports and, and one of the great ones. What's happened as a result of neoliberal financial globalization is that the values of the Pakistan cricket team and the Indian cricket team have increased. So there is ever more incentive for sponsors, media, the state to promote and enhance the importance to Indians of India, to Pakistanis of Pakistan, um, that makes those, the investment they've made in those teams all the more valuable. And so I think sport is, is riddled by this base modern sport, very deep contradiction um, between the way its economic realities enhance divisions, inequalities, including national chauvinism, national bigotry, and the egalitarian premise and promise of the level playing field. I'll finish there. Uh, well, that's